of time with the announcement, but some things that came to my mind. Remember here at, uh, in Genesis 28, as uh, a brief flashback, that uh, Jacob slept on a rock, and then he had a dream during the night of a ladder that was set up from heaven and the angels coming up and down, and God appeared above the ladder uh, toward the end of chapter 28 and made promises to him in verse 13. The Eternal stood above it and said, I am the Eternal God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land whereon you lie, to you will I give it and to your seed. And your seed shall be as the best of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God reiterating to Jacob what he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac. And he said, I'm with you and will keep you in all places where you go and will bring you again to this land. For I will not leave you till I have done that which I have spoken to you of. So in his physical life, he was going to leave the land where he was and go elsewhere, but God said, I will bring you back. And I think that that was a far-reaching, uh, double-edged situation where not only would he experience that in his lifetime, but it would also apply to his children forever because this proclamation that God is giving to Jacob is of his seed forevermore. And I think included that the land whereon he was, he would come back to, and so would his people. They would be gone. They would be gone from there for some period of time. And in fact, I believe that the place he was in was in Jerusalem, and Isaiah 61 and 58 and uh, various other places say that Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations. So the scripture itself would strengthen the idea that what he was speaking here was not just to this man, but also to you and to me later on. And then he woke up, and he was afraid, and he says, this has to be the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So where was the house of God? Where was it later built? In Jerusalem. So where he was, he named Bethel, or the house of God. And he vowed a vow, verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go. Now God had just told him that he would be with him and keep him in the way that he went. He said, if God will keep his promise, I will promise that I will serve God. He recognized it as a way of life, as we do. But there is a certain way that God would have us live and to be. It's not just which day you keep the Sabbath, but it's a way of thinking and a way of living. Verse 21, So that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then shall the eternal be my God, and this stone which I've set for a pillar shall be God's house. So the pillar stone of Jacob is at the house of God, wherever that may be at Bethel, which is very close to Jerusalem, and may be a part of it for that matter. So if we're going to find where Jacob was, we need to know where the house of God truly is. 
All right, let's go to chapter 29 then. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. So he traveled east from there. And he looked, and behold, a well in the field, and lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. Now, Jerusalem is, and I think that this is probably true, uh, in southern Utah, then from that site he traveled east toward Colorado from that point, which would have been the original Jerusalem. And uh, it's been desolate for many generations. So just where was he to the east of there? I don't know, but uh, somewhere east of that area. And there was a well, and there were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled a stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, whence be you? Where do you come from? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said to them, Know you Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. Behold, Rachel, his daughter, comes with the sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high day. Neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Apparently they kept it closed, and only when there were enough shepherds there with the cattle and the sheep, they could roll the rock out of the way in order to water their herds. Uh, they kept it private that way, I suppose. It's, we would use a padlock and a chain maybe in the door today, but they used a big rock then, and they all had to get there to open it. And while he yet spoke with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled a stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. I don't know whether he was just a big, strong guy or whether some of the men that probably were traveling with him helped him. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept what the New Testament calls a holy kiss. I imagine he gave her a hug and kissed her on the cheek. Uh, that was the, uh, the way they did it in those days. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. They found they were kind of next to kin. They found out they were cousins. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. I guess what he said when he, what he meant when he said he told him all these things was probably caught him up on the family and uh, what had happened with Isaac and uh, Rebecca and so on. The way you do when you get together. Well, how's Aunt so-and-so? And on and on it went. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. You know the stories. You know everything. You, you must be who you say you are. And he abode with him the space of a month. Visitors and relatives smell the same after three days, I've heard, like fish, but uh, he stayed 30 days. And Laban, that was just the start. <laughs> Things began to happen. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my brother... 
Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? So Jacob apparently went right to work. He stayed there 30 days, and he helped Laban with whatever Laban had to do. He had a serving attitude, a ready mind to do whatever he could to help out. He didn't just freeload and hang around the kitchen for a month. And Laban said to Jacob, oh, I read that, what, what shall your wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, Leah was tender-eyed. If you look that up, uh, it means uh, faint-hearted, or it can imply weakness as well. She was not a strong personality. Uh, she may have not had a, a real strong spirit uh, about her. Maybe she was kind of quiet and bashful, I don't know. But she was not a strong uh, personality. So she had that type of an approach. But Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. Must have had a sparkly personality, friendly, uh, helpful. There were a lot of things about Rachel that he immediately liked. Jacob loved Rachel and said... I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Well, they were setting the terms here for a marriage and for his wages. She must have been something else for him to, to volunteer seven years of hard work for that one girl. I guess in 30 days he had learned to like her a lot. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. <laughs> That's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a backhanded way of saying it, I think. Well, you're the best that showed up. I guess it'd be better to give, you to a, give her to a relative than some other guy that might come along. Uh, kind of a fatherly pride, I suppose, that Laban had there. She's not... She's too good for you, but she's also too good for anybody else that showed up so far. So I guess she'll stick around. Uh, we'll find out that he wanted the work as much as he wanted anything. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days for the love he had for her. So he wasn't able to touch her for seven years, wasn't able to marry her for seven years. But to him, it just seemed like a few days. Time goes fast when you're having fun. Uh, he was looking forward to getting married, and he was excited about it. So seven years just went by very fleetingly. I think there's a lot in character there that we need to analyze and think about. We're here to become the bride of Christ and to be a part of ruling the earth forevermore. It's quite a lofty expectation that we'll be kings and priests on the earth. Here we are, the weak and the base, not the mighty, the noble. Not, our family trees don't go back much, you know, to anything important. Uh, as far as I know, I don't even trace mine. I'm afraid, afraid to. Uh, you know, tell them what's back there. But uh, we're not wonderful people. And yet God has said, I can take the bottom of the barrel and I can form it and shape it through my spirit and through my will and through my ways to make it a ruling class that can rule over the entire earth. 
So, if we want to marry Christ that much, it should seem a fleeting thing to us. Now, it's difficult, isn't it, to grow, to change, to overcome, to become what we need to be. And yet, on the other hand, when you consider the reward that's there, that's why we always look forward and look up instead of down and at the around and at the problems that we face at the moment. It should be a fleeting thing for the joy that is to come. So, he, he loved her so much that it went by fast. And Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I might go into her. He'd waited seven years for this. He says, I've worked my seven years, now give me. And uh, Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. So he's going to have a great big feast here, get everybody together. Uh, seven years, this has been an engagement. Now it's time to do something about it. Made a feast, and it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in to her. And Laban gave to his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. I don't quite understand this one. I mean, he'd been around for seven years. He knew Leah's voice. He knew her build. He knew Rachel. He knew her voice. He knew her build. He knew her personality. They must have had an awful lot to drink in those days. That's all I can figure. An awful lot. A wedding supper. Everybody must have just gotten drunk on their behinds. Christ made barrels of wine at the wedding party, remember? I, I don't know that that kind of drunkenness is really what we ought to, to go into. <laughs> Look what sometimes happens. We see the fruit, perhaps, of too much drunkenness here. He wound up with the wrong girl in the morning. But how could you do that? I, I, don't, I don't know how you could be so drunk you wouldn't know the difference. Uh, that that was awful drunk. Or he put her perfume on this one and put her clothes on her maybe, and and I, I, I don't know. It, it just doesn't tell you all the details. But there had to have been something pretty deceptive going on here for him not to be able to discern which one it was. Didn't they talk? Had Laban told Leah, you keep your mouth shut tonight. Did you say a word? I, I don't know. Just not natural. If you come in and, Rachel, I've waited seven years for you. Come to me, my love. Give me a hug. And she's just quiet, doesn't say a word. I don't know. Hard, hard to grasp. So Jacob jumped up and ran out of the tent and said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did not I serve with you for Rachel? Wherefore then have you beguiled me? You lied, you cheated, you stole, you didn't give me what you said you would. 
And Laban said, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Why didn't he tell him that first year? I think probably that Laban hoped that during the seven years that Jacob was waiting for Rachel, somebody else would come along and want Leah, and he could marry her off ahead of time, and then it would be okay to give, ja- to give Rachel to Jacob. But nobody came along that wanted Leah, so the custom was to do it this way. And not only that, Leah must have been starting to get on up there toward Old Maid, whatever that meant in those days, and he's afraid he couldn't get rid of her, maybe. So he used a bit of chicanery here and lied. So he said, verse 27, Fulfill her week, and we will give you this also for the service which you shall serve with me yet seven other years. So he went for a twofer is what he did. Laban said, hey, I could get seven years, more years out of this guy. And that was probably another thing that was in the back, or maybe the front of his mind through this whole thing, is if he'll work seven years for Rachel and I give him Leah, then he wants Rachel so bad he'll probably work another seven years. So instead of seven years, I'll get 14 years out of him and I get rid of both daughters. You know, what father wouldn't think of it that way? And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. Now, that doesn't mean he worked the next seven years uh, before he received her. He just had to wait a week, and and, uh, then he married her. Well, this thing kind of starts out one-sided, doesn't it? Laban's cheating him. He's beguiling him, lying to him. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid, and he went also to Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. So he got the two girls a week apart, but then he had to go ahead and he bought, uh, he bought Rachel in this case on credit, I guess, and he had to pay for seven years to get the debt paid off. Put it on his MasterCard. And when the Eternal saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now this is going to turn into a real mess. Um, because these two girls were very, very competitive. And it led to all kinds of problems, as we'll see as we go through here. Um, now, could Jacob help this? I mean, really, he fell in love with Rachel right off the bat. That was the one he really wanted all along. He got tricked into marrying Leah, whom he didn't want. And yet, didn't Leah deserve to have a husband that loved her? And Jacob was in a quandary here. I love this one, and this one wants me to love her, and I don't. How do I live with this situation? And how would they live with the situation? It became very competitive. And here we're going to see the fruits of polygamy, basically, is what we're going to see. I think I'll take just a brief side trip here on that subject as we get into it, because uh, polygamy is a hot issue in the nation today. 
And we live here in northern Arizona, southern Utah area, and there's a lot of polygamy in this area. And some people believe very strongly in it. But what is God's mind on it? What does he think of it? Uh, how do we find it in Scripture? And is it something that since it's in Scripture, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and others participated in it, David did, Solomon did, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Is it something that God would approve today? Now, it's obvious that God kept hands off of it in the Old Testament. And here, he opened Leah's womb, and he closed Rachel's by divine miracle. So that Leah could have children, and Rachel could not. He wanted to balance out some things here. But the problem was the polygamy. Had they had separate husbands and had separate families, um, a lot that they lived through in life would not have happened. Let's go to Matthew 19. I won't take hopefully too long with this, but I, I want us to get a, a clear view of what God says of the subject. Matthew 19, it came to pass that when Emmanuel had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. So people came to be healed. The Pharisees also came to him, tempting him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any and every cause? They hated him, and they were trying to trip him up here. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now that's quoting from Genesis 2.24. Now it doesn't say they three or they five or they twenty became one flesh, but the husband and the wife. So what he goes back to here is God's original intent for mankind. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They thought they had him now, because he said, well, in Genesis, with Adam and Eve, God intended it, one man, one woman, forever through, not forever, but until one dies. They said to him, Why did Moses then command giving a right of divorcement to put her away? And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 25, I think it is, where it says that you could put away a wife for almost any cause, 24 or 25. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. God did not intend divorce. Now, he had made certain promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hadn't he? That he would bless through them. Now, what happened to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They went into captivity because of hardness of their hearts, because they were not willing to obey God. They went into captivity for 400 years. Then they were released, and they were very hard-hearted. 
And God did give statutes through Moses that liberalized some things because God knew that if he put the standard here, they would not live up to it. They were hard-hearted, and he would have to destroy them. And then the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could not be fulfilled. Israel had a history of disobedience to God throughout almost all their history. And we, today, in this promised land of Ephraim, have been blessed not because of our goodness, but because God promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God gave it back to us. Jacob, Israel, came back to this promised land about 400 years ago. And look what we've done with it. We have besmirched it, defiled it, polluted it. We've been immoral, ungodly, and we are about to be destroyed again because of it. We have a divorce rate today, which is at least 50%, if not now, higher. That was not God's original intention. But we have not lived up to God's original intention. And because of our fornication, our adultery, our divorce and remarriage, our abortion, our murdering of our babies and passing them through the fire of Moloch, the god of selfishness and idolatry. We want to have the fun of engendering children, but then we want to abort them and kill them because we don't want to live with the price that comes from our immorality. That is idolatry. I want me to have what I want without having to pay a price or a penalty. And that's where this nation is today. And God hates it. He's going to destroy it again. But this time, see, he has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And we have lived in a verdant, beautiful, wonderful land that we have besmirched and ruined. And it is a stench in the nose of God today the society and the culture that we have developed. Now, he intended from the very beginning that man and woman would be faithful to each other, that they would both be virgins when they were married, and that they would never, ever share that with anyone else. That is what God originally intended. And that's not the way America is living today. So what is God going to do? He is going to take it back to his original intent. When Christ comes back, most of Israel will have been killed. Most of the world, the population, will have been killed. I think Daniel says 100 million is all that will survive. And then, We will go back to the original intent, and that's the way it will be. And if someone starts to sin or do the wrong thing, somebody's going to tap them on the shoulder and say, no, go this way. You, you think parents <laughs> are too restrictive today. Wait until the world tomorrow, 
And if you even start to sin, you're going to get tapped on the shoulder and told, no, 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 no. And there's no way you can go hide. We will be God beings, the 144,000 kings and rulers and priests with Christ, and we will see everything and know everything. Is that scary? Would you want to live under those conditions? Well, in truth, we already do. God the Father and his Son see everything. You can't hide from them. There's scriptures in Isaiah that say, people will say, well, God doesn't see. He doesn't pay any attention. Oh, yes, he does. And the other shoe is about to fall on this nation. You see, what we have is unbelief. We simply do not believe God when he says, living my way is the way that leads to peace and happiness and contentment. We think living according to the flesh and our earthly, carnal, human desires will produce happiness and peace, but it won't. And that is the struggle that goes on within every human being to do that right now, which would please my senses, my flesh. And we have a struggle against it. Because academically, we understand that the commandments are there to be kept and that they will produce peace and happiness. But we want what we want when we want it. And the carnal mind is enmity to God. The natural human mind does not want to do what God wants it to do. And it becomes an extreme difficulty. And these people had a problem with that, didn't they? Why did Moses give them the writing of divorcement to put her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for pornea, sexual fraud, basically, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marries her which is put away does commit adultery. And then, of course, they went on to say, well, this, that's too hard. Nobody can live up to that. Their, their human minds would not accept that you should marry one woman and live with her for the rest of your days. That's the way it should be. Now, they had some problems in the New Testament because uh, people came into the church who already had several wives. What do you do in a case like that? We encountered that even in this era of the church in Africa where uh, some men had four wives. They started reading the plain truth and so on and became converted. And that went against church teaching and God's teaching to have more than one wife. I heard one evangelist say, well, he's got to get rid of three. He just picked the one he wants the most and turned the other three out on the street, more or less. Well, would that be fair? I thought at the time, that, that doesn't sound right at all. How could you do that? 
I mean, here, these women might have a kid or two or three or four apiece, and they're used to being cared for by this man, and now you just dump them in the street? I don't think so. I thought Mr. Armstrong made a good judgment on that. There was nothing in Scripture to say it, but uh, he said, just don't marry anymore. You already have these. Don't marry anymore, and don't continue the practice in the next generation. But they must have faced the same thing in the New Testament, because when Paul was talking to Titus and to Timothy about church administration, and he told them, the qualifications that you needed to have if you were to be in the ministry or to be a deacon. And it says in Titus 1.6, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, not wives. So apparently, they had people coming into the church at that time who had more than one wife. But when it came time to ordain into the ministry, they restricted it so that if they were to be an elder, or to be a deacon, even, they could only have one wife. That didn't mean that you, it's been explained that that meant that you had to be married to be an elder or a deacon. No, Paul was not married, and Christ put him in the ministry. He might have been married in the past, we don't know that for sure. The, they say that he was a, a in the Sanhedrin, and that you had to be married to be in the Sanhedrin, so therefore he must have at one time been married. That may or may not have been the case. But when he came into the church, he was in an unmarried state, and Christ put him into the ministry not being married. So I think that what this means is, when you have a polygamous situation around you, you might keep those wives, but if you're going to be a deacon or an elder, you can only have one. And then they would have taught them not to continue the practice of polygamy. I think that's clear in Ephesians 5. Uh, it's talking about husband and wife relationships and how the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, he's the savior of the body, and that we have to be subject to Christ in every way and, and the wife be subject to her husband and the husband was to love his wife. Uh, let's see, down in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ wants his bride to be holy and without blemish. Spots and wrinkles here don't necessarily mean physical sag lines, they mean character, because we're all going to age humanly and physically, and uh, we'll probably have lots of wrinkles by the time we die. But this is talking about spiritual wrinkles. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Just like he told Adam and Eve, you become one, and we should become one with him. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So Paul here takes it right back to Genesis 2.24. Then he explains 
This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, the marriage relationship between one man and his one wife should be a type and a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. We should work at making our marriages fit that mold. We as human beings fall very far short of that, but that should be the goal and the purpose, and it was one of the reasons for which he made marriage, is that it might have a similarity between Christ and the church, because that is the ultimate meaning of marriage. It's when we are joined together as one with him. So God's original intent was one man, one wife, not polygamy. Now let's go on back. God says you'll know them by their fruits. And we'll begin to read the fruit of polygamy. So we stopped, we left off at verse 31. Uh, Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which means in Hebrew, see a son. For she said, Surely the Eternal has looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. She was very needy. She had, in some respects, a weak personality, apparently. And she says, I get to see a son. Now maybe my husband will love me. So she had gone through a period of time in the marriage, I don't know how long, through at least nine months, and saw a son. Now it may have been some time before she conceived because it had to become apparent that Leah was going to be fruitful and Rachel was barren. So it must have been a, at least a period of months that went by before Leah conceived so that she knew one was able to have children and the other could not. But she named the son after her emotional situation. I am an odious woman, as the Proverbs puts it. That means... I am not loved by my husband. How would that feel to be married to someone and know he did not love you? She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I was hated, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, that is, hearing, or God heard me. He knew I was hated, he heard my prayers, and he gave me another son. So she was still feeling the pressure, wasn't she? Her sister Rachel was loved. Now, he may have loved Leah to some degree. I don't know to what degree. Certainly not as much as Rachel, based on the face of the story. But she felt hated, despised, unwanted, unneeded. So she wanted these children so that she could feel loved. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now, this time, will my husband be joined to me? Because I have borne him three sons, therefore was his name called Levi, or joined. Surely, after three sons, my husband will feel joined to me. Now, isn't that what we read in the original, from the beginning? That husband and wife will be joined together as one flesh. 
Leah was not feeling that. That had been God's intention for marriage. But Laban had tricked Jacob. And you know what else? He really had tricked his older daughter. He had put her in a situation that was almost unbearable to her by making her marry Jacob when he did not want to marry her. His heart was set on Rachel. So I get to see a son, maybe he'll love me. I get, God heard me, I was hated, gave me another one. And now, maybe this time, after three children, maybe he'll feel joined to me. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, Now will I praise the eternal. Therefore she called his name Judah, or praise, and left bearing. So it was still working very heavily upon her. Four sons, and now I will praise God. Maybe my husband will love me, finally. Now this is what Leah had been going through in this situation. What had Rachel been going through in the meantime? Because she knew her husband's heart was with her, and yet she couldn't produce children. So she was going through some real trouble too. Let's read on. And when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. Envy, jealousy set in. Those are not the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the works of the flesh. Those are negative attitudes. She, was, she came to the point she despised Leah. She envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. You think you love me? I haven't had any kids. You give me some children or I'm going to die. <laughs> pretty strong emotion. Pretty strong feelings. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, I, am I in God's stead? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Am I the one that's done this? I've been doing my duty. You just haven't gotten pregnant. It's not my fault. God did this. You're blaming me? Well, this being married to two women is getting kind of sticky. And she said, Behold, my maid Bilhah, go into her, and she shall bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. So I'm going to have a child one way or another. And if you get my handmaid pregnant, she belongs to me, and I'll hold her on my knees while she has my baby. She was getting pretty desperate by this time. And she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid, to wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Judgment or Dan. So they named all these kids after their own emotions and feelings. It says later on that Dan would be left out of the 144,000 because he was so judgmental of his brethren. So the hatred the feelings, the envy, the jealousy, the animosity that Rachel 
had must have been passed on to that son Dan while he was in her womb. The bitterness and frustration. They say that your attitude during the time you're carrying a baby sometimes is reflected in that baby. And that may have been the case here. And Bilhah Rachel's maid conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, With great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed, and she called his name Naphtali, or my wrestling. So it's all still about the relationship between these two sisters, back and forth, forth and back. This has been going on now for lots of years. Four to Leah, and then she stopped having them, and then the handmaid had a couple. So this is going on probably toward, what, seven, eight, ten years? I don't know how long. I've been wrestling with my sister. I prevailed. She still hadn't had a baby, but she was getting her emotional satisfaction to her handmaid. It's a little hard to understand, isn't it? Why would two women share a man? This is the fruit. Uh, Rachel, she called his name Naphtali, and when Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her Jacob the wife. So Leah said, I, I haven't been getting pregnant anymore, but I'm not going to get behind in this deal, so I'm going to send my handmaid in. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, A troop comes, and she called his name Gad. <laughs> We're going to have a bunch. I'm going to outdo Rachel. I may not have any of my own, but boy, through this handmaid, we're going to have a bunch of them. So she called him Troop. And Zilpah Leah's maid bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Happy, or Asher. Now I'm happy. I'm, I'm up on her now. I had four, and... Uh, then she had a couple. Now I've had two more. Where's Jacob in all this? How's he feeling? These women biting back and forth, forth and back. What a mess I'm in. <laughs> what am I going to do? I think I'll go out and herd the sheep. Anyway. Verse 14, And Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray, your, your son's mandrakes. Mandrakes were uh, a plant that grew out in the field. And the word mandrakes in the Hebrew means pot or basket of this plant. And they used it for an aphrodisiac. Uh, you know what aphrodisiacs are, I guess. So we won't have to explain that. So Rachel said, that he, so Reuben, Leah's son, found the aphrodisiac out in the wheat field, brought it into his mother. And Rachel said to Leah, give me, I pray you, of your son's mandrakes. This became a war 
about who's going to sleep with Jacob. She said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken my husband? And will you take away my son's mandrakes also? Well, Leah had an attitude right away. You already got Jacob. You're going to take the aphrodisiac away? How am I going to get him to sleep with me now? Rachel said, Therefore he shall lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So she was going to be kind and, and uh, shove Jacob in Leah's tent that night. And the price would be the mandrakes. Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him. He probably saw her coming and said, oh, no, she doesn't usually do this. Here comes trouble. And said, you must come in to me, for surely I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. So he didn't. After all the wrangling that had gone on for this many years, he probably just said, whatever. You know? <laughs> You got the mandrakes, okay. I'm, I'm trying to fill in the story a little bit. I don't know exactly how he reacted, but I'm just thinking of humans and how they react. And after this much fighting and wrangling and jealousy and envy and back and forth, and I'm sure that this didn't just happen every nine months when a baby was born. This was going on every day, all day long, between these women and their handmaids and poor Jacob. Leah said, God has given me my hire because I've given my maiden to my husband, and she called his name Issachar, or hire. I, I hired him for the night. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob the sixth son. So this is a sixth natural kid for her. And Leah said, God has imbued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me, because I've borne him six sons, and she called his name Zebulun, or dwelling. Finally, he's going to live with me. So I won't have to hire him anymore, but now, after six sons, surely he'll love me and come and live with me. Where's the end of this story? And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And God remembered Rachel. And God hearkened to her and opened her womb. So Rachel's been behind on this deal all along, and she kind of crippled through by having a couple through her handmaid. But now he's going to open her womb. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph and said, The Eternal shall add to me another son. She had been feeling left out all this time so instead of being happy that she had the one, she named him, add me another one. Give me another one. She had a problem. Be thankful for what you have been given. After all those years, she finally had one. And she said, give me another one. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children, whom I have served you, for whom I have served you, and let me go, for you know my service, which I have done to you. Laban said to him, I pray to you, if I have found favor in your eyes, stay. For, if, for I have learned by experience that the Eternal has blessed me for your sake. 
So he could see that he had had blessings that came as a result of being around Jacob. His herds had increased. And he said, appoint me your wages and I will give it. So he said, I know you're going to leave. Tell me what wages you want and I'll give it. I know I've been blessed. He said to him, you know how I have served you and how your cattle was with me. For it was little which you had before I came, and it is now increased into a multitude, and the Eternal has blessed you since my coming. And now when shall I provide for my own house also? Now, Jacob knew that God had promised him a great deal of wealth, and that he would receive that wealth. So now he's going to say, where is it? I've been working all these years. And he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. You won't give me anything. I've earned it. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. And I'll stay on a while, but here's what I want done. I will pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted cattle and all the brown cattle among the sheep and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire. Now in those days, apparently, you wanted solid-color animals. The sheep needed to be white, not brown, and the cattle needed to be of a solid color. They had more value than they did if they were speckled, spotted, and ring-straked, and so on. So he's offering to Laban all the solid color, the more desirable cattle. And that'll be my pay. And so shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come. This will pay off for me. When it shall come from my hire before your face, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. If I have any solid colored ones, then that will be a stolen one. Laban said, Behold, I would it might be according to your word. Okay, I'll go for this deal. And he removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked and spotted and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted and everyone that had some white in it and all the brown among the sheep and gave them in the hands of his son. So he separated them out. And he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. And Jacob took him, took him rods of green poplar and of the hazel and chestnut tree and peeled white stripes in them and made the white appear which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled before the flocks in the gutters and the watering troughs when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods and brought forth cattle ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring-straked and all the brown in the flock of Laban, and he put his own flocks by themselves and put them not to Laban's cattle. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maid servants and men servants and camels and asses. What was he doing here? You read the commentaries and it'll say that there was some kind of magic and when they would look at these lines that he'd peeled in the poles, that, uh, that that made them have spotted calves. Now, Jacob started what we would call today selective breeding. 
And he peeled all these poles and laid them in lines on the ground like a cattle guard, so the cattle would not walk across them, because they won't walk over a series of poles laid like that. That's why cattle guards are effective. So when it came breeding season, he could see the animals were in season, ready to be bred. He would bring them in to the water holes, and he would put the spotted bulls with the solid-colored cows, and then the calves would be spotted and ring-straked and speckled. And the strong cattle he put in there to breed with his spotted ones, and if the cattle were weak or not as well-conformed, uh, weren't as good-looking, then he would leave them out. So he got all the strong ones, and he got all the spotted ones, and spotted is a strong gene. So most of the cattle turned out to be Jacob's then. It was a matter, in a way, of subterfuge. It was a matter of getting his wages, because his wages had been changed ten times by Laban. He kept promising one thing and doing a different one. So he devised a way. He was smart. He figured out, okay, you don't want the speckled ones and the spotted ones. They're not as desirable to you. I'll make sure you don't have many. And most of them will be spotted and speckled. And he heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's has he gotten all this glory. They began to realize what Jacob was up to. Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. He, he was three days apart, and then he went to see Laban, or Laban came to see him, and said, uh-oh, little change in attitude here. His sons had been talking to him about how many cattle Jacob had. The Lord said to Jacob, now was God in this? The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. That's what he had promised. Now, this was a turning point in Jacob's life where he was about to leave Laban and God had told him, now I'm still with you. And you know not, and you know that with all my power, oh, wait a minute, I'll skip some. I'll be with you. And, and Jacob sent and called Rachel in verse 4, and Leah to the field of his flock, and said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not toward me as before. But the God of my father has been with me. So he brought them out and says, look, girls, quit fighting for a minute. Let's talk. And uh, your dad's attitude's changed, but God is with me. I had, God spoke to me. And you know that with all my power have I served your father. So let's be honest, let's be fair here. You know I've been working for this man for 20 years now. And I've served him well. And your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. He may have lied to me, changed things around, recut the deal, cheated me, but God has not let it hurt me. If he said this, the speckle shall be your wages, then all the cattle bore speckled. And if he said this, the ring strake shall be your hire, then bore all the cattle ring strake. <laughs> He had it figured out. Whatever Laban said, that's the ones that he put in there between the flat cattle guards to breed. He didn't build corrals up six feet high like we might today because this was part of the subterfuge. He laid it down flat on the ground, and from a distance, 
Nobody could see what was going on. But if Laban said this, then Jacob did the opposite. Thus God has taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. And it came to pass at the time that the cattle conceived that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the cattle were ring straight, speckled, and grizzled. And the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, I'm here. And he said, Lift up now your eyes and see all the rams which leap upon the cattle are ring straight, speckled, and grizzled, for I have seen all that Laban does to you. I am the God of Bethel, the house of God, where you anointed the pillow, and where you vowed a vow to me, now arise, get you out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So he did tell him at the beginning, I'll bring you back. And he was. But he had told Jacob in a dream how to get his wages. Because Laban had been cheating him from the very beginning. He says, all right, you can go along with what the man says, and here's the way you can do it and come out on top of the deal by doing exactly what Laban tells you to do. So he didn't have to rebel against Laban as such. He just used the advice God gave him and made sure he had the right color of bulls on the right cattle at the right time. So there was nothing wrong with selective breeding. And Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there yet any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? For he has sold us and has quite devoured also our money. Well, Laban wasn't giving them anything either. For all the riches which God has taken from our father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God has said to you, do. So his wives were in accord with him on this. Said that we, re we realize what our father's done, and he's not going to give us anything. But God has made sure that you have wealth for us. And he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting which he had gotten in Pen Pedan Aram, for to go to the Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. So God is fulfilling his promise to Jacob, told him how to go about it and how to get his wages, even though Laban was trying to cheat him. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. My margin says teraphim, and uh, the word in the Hebrew is idols or healing idols. I remember Rachel had been barren, uh, and then finally God had given her a son, one, and she named it, give me another. Uh, so she stole her father's idols, which were supposed to be for healing. Because she was, she'd had one son, and then she didn't have any more. So she must have gone into some paganism here and stolen these idols, which were supposed to make her fertile, or to heal her barrenness. She was uh, not really looking to God. She was looking to another source to restore her. And Jacob stayed away unaware to Laban the Syrian and that he had told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had. He didn't trust Laban at all. And he rose up and passed over the river and set his face toward Mount Gilead. And it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was gone. And he took his brethren with him and pursued him seven days. And they overtook him in Mount Gilead. And God came to Laban, the Syrian, in a dream by night. So Jacob wasn't the only one that God spoke to. 
And he said to him, Take heed that you speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Don't you mistreat Jacob. Uh, now, he had made promises to Jacob, and he was keeping them. But he warned Laban, You treat him right. Then Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountain, and Laban went with his brethren and pitched in the mount of Gilead. He was headed back to Jerusalem, and he was going from the east over the mountains. How many mountains in the Middle East do you see just east of Jerusalem? There's some hills there, and then there's the Jordan River, and then there's a, a hill that goes up to the west, the east of it, but there's really no mountains there. You have to go a little further south, as I recall, to see much mountain. But anyway, we had a mountain here. So does the geography fit? Question. Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you've stolen away unaware to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? Had he done that? No, the daughters had been given to him. He'd worked for them. And he, he said, You're stealing my daughters. They weren't his. Why didn't you tell me that I might have sent you away with happiness and laughter and with songs, with tabret and with harp? And you have not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters. You have now done foolishly in so doing. It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. I could kill you for this. That was Laban's attitude. But the God of your father spoke to me yesternight saying, Take you heed that you speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. He said, I'd kill you if I could, but God told me not to. And now, though you be, would be, need be gone, because you so longed after your father's house, yet wherefore have you stolen my gods? Uh-oh. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Perhaps you would take by force your daughters from me. The, the relationship wasn't all that great. With whomsoever you find your gods, let him not live. Before our brethren discern you what is yours with me, and take it to you. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. People sometimes make choices or make statements they ought to think about before they make. Remember the king who said, made the stupid promise, next person that comes in my door, I'll kill. Turned out to be the daughter he loved. In this case, Jacob made a bad statement. It didn't turn out too bad, thankfully, but it could have very easily. Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent. So Laban, or Jacob, was living with Rachel. And then he went into Leah's tent and into the two maidservants' tents and found them not. He went out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. Well, I guess they had separate, totally. Jacob had his tent, Leah had her tent, the maidservants had their tents, and Rachel had her own tent. That may have been Jacob's intent. Forgive me. But after all the fighting he'd heard, it probably was intent. Keep everybody in different tents. So he went into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture, in the saddles, and sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent, but found them not. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise up before you, for the custom of women is upon me. 
And he searched but found not the images. So she used the monthly as her excuse uh, not to get up, and she was sitting on him. And Jacob was angry and chode with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued after me? Whereas you have searched all my stuff, what have you found of all your household stuff? Set it here before my brethren, and by in your brethren, that they may judge between us. This twenty years have I been with you. Your ewes and your goats have not cast their young. The rams of your flock have I not eaten. Now, through a good business sense and a bright idea and a selective breeding, those speckle-spotted and ring-striped were literally his. He had not stolen anything from Laban, had he? He had been honorable in that sense because Laban kept changing the deal. If it started having a bunch of spotted cows, he says, well, now I want the ring straight. So Jacob would run them, the ones that had done lines on them or whatever in, and they'd suddenly start having ring straight. This got frustrating to Laban. Then he'd say, well, I want all of this kind. So Jacob gave him what he wanted <laughs> in each case. And over 20 years, that which was torn of beasts I brought not to you, I bear the loss of it. Of my hand did you require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. So he says, I took the losses. I gave you everything you asked for and wanted. Thus I was, and the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. It got cold out there. It got hot out there. But he was there taking care of the flocks faithfully and bearing any losses that he had. I've been like this for 20 years in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your cattle, and you've changed my wages 10 times. Now, where does he look? Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely you had sent me away now empty. You wouldn't have given me anything if God wasn't looking after me. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you yesternight. He said, that was a rebuke, Laban. God was on my side here. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters and these children are my children. These cattle are my cattle and all that you see is mine. And what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children which they have born? <laughs> these are all mine, he's still saying. Now therefore come you and let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be for a witness between me and you. And Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillow, or a pillar, and Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. They took stones and made a heap, and they did eat there upon the heap. And Laban called it something or another, but Jacob called it Galib. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between me and you this day, therefore was the name of it called Galib. They both called it the heap of witness. Two different words, but they must have had a, a bit of a different meaning. And Mizpah, for he said, The eternal watch between me and you, when we are absent one from another, if you shall afflict my daughters, or if you shall take other wives beside my daughters, no man is with us. See, God is witness between me and you. So he was telling him, Don't you marry anybody else. You got my two daughters. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar, which I have cast between you and me. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, 
You shall not pass over this heap and this pillar to me for harm. So it meant a little bit different to each of them, so they called it by a different word. And he said, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Jacob. Well, he showed respect to his father and to his father's life and the way he lived and what he did. And that's why we're going through these stories, is that we might honor our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God tells us we should do. And notice that Jacob became a wealthy man, but he did not do it with chicanery and lying and cheating like Laban did. Somebody might say, well, he was cheating. No, he wasn't. He gave Laban exactly what Laban asked for all the way through. He served honestly for Rachel. He got cheated, and he served another year, seven years before he could have her. He was a patient man. He, he was very persevering. He had dogged determination that he would do things the right way, but he would trust God to take care of him, and he would work hard and not cheat even though he had been cheated. So very admirable qualities here in Jacob. Then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat bread. They did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. And early in the morning Laban rose up, kissed his sons and his daughters, and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned to his place. So he got away without bloodshed. And uh, let's stop there.